0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Fellow listeners, welcome back to Behind the Knife. It's been a little bit since we've put out a plastic surgery episode, so if you're looking to learn once more from our better-dressed colleagues over in the plastics department, this episode is for you. Returning to the show is our guest, Dr. Shalesh Agrawal. As a reminder, Dr. Agrawal is a plastic surgeon and associate professor of surgery at the Brigham. We last heard from him on our episode on trunk reconstruction, which you should check out if you haven't listened to it already. One of Dr. Agrawal's specialties is the management of lymphedema, so I brought him back today to share his knowledge with us. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Agrawal. It's a pleasure to have you.
0: Mike, thanks for having me back on the show. appreciate it.
1: Well of course, we loved having you the first time and uh, you know, Kevin was on with us for the trunk reconstruction episode. He couldn't make today. he's deployed, but he does send
0: his regards. Hope he's doing well and staying safe.
1: So we're talking about lymphedema today. A quick anecdote that I never forget when I start talking about lymphedema, but when I was an intern, we had a patient who had some inguinal lymphadenopathy for a few months. A surgeon decided to do an excisional biopsy of this node and the patient subsequently developed some really terrible lymphedema in that lower extremity that just kept having recurring bouts of like whole leg and thigh cellulitis, really awful. Not a good outcome for that patient. Of course, more commonly, I think about our breast cancer patients who received the big axillary lymph node dissection. And I imagine that is the patient you are most frequently encountering when you're seeing somebody for lymphedema.
0: Yeah. So, you know, lymphedema is, uh, is a complicated topic because it is one of the sequelae of treatment for cancer. and And, you know, it affects the upper and lower extremities. So, uh, whereas oftentimes we think of breast cancer patients who have upper extremity lymphedema, which is, um, which is about 20% of patients who've had uh, axillary lymph node dissections with radiation, will go on to develop upper extremity lymphedema. Um, there's also patients who have lower extremity lymphedema after uh, pelvic lymph node, uh, p- pelvic lymphadenectomy, as well as inguinal lymphadenectomy. So those are patients who have urogynecologic urogyneco- surgery, uh, tumors um, excised, as well as uh, melanoma, and who've undergone uh, inguinal lymph node um, dissections. So those are kind of the the two different groups um, that I that we see in clinic. Um, and uh, breast reconstruction being a large part of my practice, um, I do see a fair amount of breast re- of uh, breast cancer patients with lymph- uh, lymphedema as well. Um,
1: so when we see a patient who has just general swelling in a limb, what should be on our differential diagnosis, and how do we make sure we're not being fooled that this is not something else before we settle on lymphedema?
0: Great question. So, you know, especially, um, you know, when we have either upper or lower extremity uh, swelling, and we want to find out the time course, how long has this been present for, um, whether the patients had any previous workup for this. Um, so, as a patient had axillary or uh, inguinal surgery before, that would suggest that they've had lymph nodes removed. Any radiation, those increase the likelihood of lymphedema being the cause or being the underlying diagnosis. But of course, uh, DVT being something else that we need to rule out. And so, oftentimes, um, I'll order an ultrasound um, of the affected extremity as well to confirm that there's no underlying DVT that could be affecting the area.
1: So you mentioned radiation earlier as a a risk factor. What exactly is the relative risk um, for having radiation in the the axilla or close by? And uh, what other risk factors should we be thinking about?
0: Yeah, so, you know, typically when we think about patients who've had, especially for breast cancer patients, who've had axillary radiation as well as uh, lymphadenectomy, because often those two go hand in hand. There's about a twenty percent um, risk of uh, developing lymphedema. Now, the the challenge with lymphedema is um, is diagnosis, right? So patients may have lymphedema and never present to their um, to their provider with the complaints uh, of the lymphedema because they just have it and they don't know that it's something that they need to that can be addressed either non-operatively or operatively. Um, the, uh, other, um, factors that kind of increase the risk of developing lymphedema, I think, uh, that comes to mind is obesity being, uh, being one of the, one of the things at the top of the list as well. So between having, um, you know, lymphadenectomy, radiation, and obesity, uh, I think those are kind of the three top factors that we look at.
1: So patient comes to your clinic and, uh, you know, they have lymphedema, um, I'm aware that one of the first things that we do often is uh, we we suggest conservative non operative therapy, compression wraps, massage, et cetera. How does conservative therapy like that fit into your management algorithm?
0: Yeah, so I think the, the question ultimately hinges on at what point during the di- diagnosis or development of lymphedema is a patient coming in to see me in clinic? And so oftentimes, um, patients will. Have provided or have presented to their medical oncologist, and the medical oncologist will then have referred them to occupational therapy, um, where again they'll do um, compression massage. um, They'll do um, they'll have uh, wraps that can be uh, placed as well, um, as well as um, surgical pump or pumps as well. So uh, decompression pumps that can be placed to basically help. Ultimately, all these things are intended to just push fluid out of the limb. Um, and, and so when the patient has seen me, the things that I want to know are, you know, how long have their symptoms uh, been present for and uh, how well is, comp- is non-operative therapy helping them? So how well is compression helping them? You know, ideally, when I think about, you know, when patients are seeing me, we're really thinking about what's the plan for surgery and is surgery a reasonable option for this patient? And if so, what's the surgical operation? One of the things that's helpful for me is knowing if a patient's uh, non-operative therapy has been effective because if it has been effective, then that suggests that there's a substantial amount of fluid that can be pushed out of the limb. And that's the appropriate timing. That's that's the perfect um, patient to intervene on surgically as well because a lot of our operations are intended to drain out the fluid. And so lymphedema, when we think about the progression, um, there is the edema aspect of things where there's a substantial amount of fluid that builds up, but then that fluid, um, that chronic uh, fluid buildup, leads to chronic inflammation. And in that setting, the patients then develop this deposition of fat tissue and fibrous tissue. And that also increases the volume of the limb and causes that lymphedema, but uh, it's not amenable to the same type of surgical solutions um, that, say, fluid is. And so that kind of leads us to a branch point where we think about different options for our patients.
1: So just to clarify, because it might sound counterintuitive to some, but if conservative therapy is working, if the fluid is able to be pushed out of the limb with compression, that suggests to you that surgery will be effective and it's a good time to operate.
0: Yeah, it it is. I mean, you know, the the major problem with non-operative therapy ultimately is not necessarily its efficacy, but the amount of energy and effort that goes into uh, reaching that efficacy. So patients spend hours per day uh, doing the wraps, wrapping in the morning, uh, having a sleeve on, having a sleeve on in the summer, can be very uncomfortable. Um, so these are things that they can be effective when when patients are able to adhere to it. Uh, the challenge is the adherence part. And so if we know that in times of adherence, to the non-operative therapy that this is very effective, then our goal with surgery is to reduce their reliance on that non-operative therapy. Um, and so that's why it is a little counterintuitive, but uh, really the goal here again is a quality of life thing to improve, um, to, to reduce the amount of time that patients have to spend uh, managing their lymphedema.
1: What is your impression on how widespread, uh, actually, let me let me rephrase, What is your impression on how widely known it is among the medical community um, who are not plastic surgeons that lymphedema surgery is, in fact, an option? Are you afraid that some of these patients might be lost to you, that their primary care providers are not aware that a referral to a plastic surgeon might be helpful?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, Mike, that kind of underscores why I'm here today, too, because I think uh, this reaches a larger community, and your podcast reaches a large community of, of providers. Um, Not necessarily primary care physicians, but even general surgeons um, who may see these patients, see the breast cancer surgeons, um, oncologists as well, uh, who are taking care of these patients. So I think information is the biggest thing. Plastic surgeons have done an increasingly better job of reaching out to um, potential referring physicians uh, to inform them about the options that exist, Um, I know that at the Brigham, for example, where I'm at, uh, we've reached out and worked closely with our breast cancer surgeons um, to take care of patients with lymphedema. And since we've made ourselves known to the breast cancer surgeons with respect to our lymphedema therapy, um, we've seen an uptick in the number of patients that we see in clinic. And not all those patients are patients that we're going to operate on. But but if we're not going to operate on them, we at least give them some idea that, look, we need to be um, vigilant, need to maintain non-operative therapy. And oftentimes I'll have patients uh, uh, work with with the occupational therapist for an extended period of time um, and then have them uh, see me subsequently for surgery. But at least this way we get the ball rolling and we we kind of uh, give patients a sense that there's a light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Okay. So uh, let's talk about the different surgical modalities that are available to you. So uh, we're going to talk about lymphovenous bypass, lymph node free transfers, and liposuction. Talk to us about how you go about deciding between your options.
0: So, So, you know, when I think about therapy or surgical treatment, I'm thinking about the different points of intervention. So intervention can occur prior to developing lymphedema. So in those patients who are high risk, So you have your patient who um, is having a lymphadenectomy, is gonna require radiation and may be obese. And so now we know that patient's kind of the highest risk stratification. So the option for that patient um, that's gaining popularity is uh, the lympha procedure or the uh, lymphatic microsurgical preventative healing approach. Basically, it's a preventative lymphovenous bypass that's performed at the time of their lymphadenectomy. So imagine this, you have your patient um, who is undergoing lymphadenectomy with the breast cancer surgeon um, or with their melanoma surgeon. Um, and at the time of the lymphadenectomy, we can go in there and we can connect lymphatic vessels that are being transected during the lymphadenectomy and connect them to branches off of say, the axillary vein or branches off of the, we can look for branches off the saphenous vein, for example, for doing the lower extremity. And do that bypass. The lympha procedure, um, the incidence, the reported incidence of um, lymphedema of the upper extremity in patients who've had lympha is about 4 to 5%. Um, And so that's in patients who are having a lymphadenectomy and will require radiation. If they've undergone lympha, we're looking at around 4 to 5% uh, incidence of lymphedema. Compare that substantial reduction. Substantial reduction. Compare that to twenty to thirty percent um, if they didn't have lympha. Literature is growing, but it's a it's a highly it seems to be a highly effective procedure um, and one that really doesn't increase the morbidity because it's all done at the same time um, through the same incision. So that's in patients who haven't developed lymphedema. Um, and then when I think about lymphedema in the patient who I'm seeing in clinic who has had a lot of efficacy with their non-operative therapy. The wraps are working well, but they're just having a hard time continuing with the wraps because it takes a lot of time and effort. But when they're able to do it, it works great. That patient has the fluid that we talked about. And in that situation, now I'm thinking about lymph node transfer uh, and um, and lymphovenous bypass performed in the affected extremity. So i um, happy to talk about lymph node transfer more uh, in a minute. But then when I think about the patient who may see me in clinic, who who wrapping doesn't work anymore. And when I press on the limb, it doesn't indent. There's no fluid in there anymore. It's all fat and fibrous tissue. For that patient, then we're thinking about liposuction and then lifetime wrapping of the limb. And those patients have kind of end-stage lymphedema. So that's lymphedema that really is not going to be treatable uh and reversible. And so those patients we try to just remove as much of the fat and the fibrous tissue and then they have to have lifelong wraps.
1: What does preoperative imaging consist of? Do you do, you do uh, lymphatic mapping? How, how do you understand the um the anatomy of the patient?
0: Yeah. So in the patients who have lymphedema on our semi clinic uh so l- let's focus on those patients who have um Lymphedema with fluid retention, right? So these are the patients with pitting edema. When I press on the limb, it leaves a little indent uh, in the limb. So for those patients, um, the things that we want to get are again uh, an ultrasound to rule out a DVT, uh, and and that's uh, kind of straightforward. But then also I'll get a lymphoscintigraphy, uh, and then I can basically confirm the diagnosis. So lymphoscintigraphy, you know, they they'll inject the technetium. Um, Uh, distally, and then I can kind of see which lymph nodes are taking up the tracer and during what timing. And all that is, is really to confirm the diagnosis. Um, Not as much for, you know, I don't use it as much for like to identify where the lymph nodes are, because I know where the lymph nodes have been removed from already, because they have a surgical history that I can rely on. Um, But what I do want to do is be able to have some documented, um, confirmation of the diagnosis. So not only ruling out DVT, but also showing delayed transit time, uh, confirming that the, the disease process is indeed lymphedema.
1: So we discussed briefly lymphovenous bypass and lympha, which I understand to essentially be prophylactic lymphovenous bypass. So what exactly is the technique before behind performing the bypass. Let's pretend we're working with a patient who is undergoing lympha, so lymphovenous bypass at the time of their axillary lymph node dissection.
0: Um, so essentially at the time of the uh, node dissection that's being performed by the, um, by the uh, oncologic surgeon, um, then basically at that time we'll inject um, isosulfan blue or methylene blue uh, in the distal extremity as well. And so in the arm, for example, in the upper arm or lower arm, we'll inject uh, our tracer. And then we can basically visualize the dye traveling through the lymphatic vessels. So now we can basically identify the lymphatic vessels. So once we identify the lymphatic vessels in the extremity, um, then we uh, basically, under the microscope, we'll find a branch off the axillary vein uh, that's in proximity to the, to the lymphatic vessel. And under the microscope, we make that connection with very small suture. The, the key, there are a couple of things. So we know that with our oncologic surgeon, our oncologic surgeon will also be maybe uh, using a dye as well. So sometimes they'll be doing a sentinel lymph node biopsy and then convert to a node dissection. So in that situation, if they're, uh, if they're injecting, say, methylene blue or isosulfan blue for their sentinel node biopsy, then in the limb, we have to use a different color. Right. So then in the limb, I may use um, uh, indocyanine green, and then I can use the um, ICG camera, for example, to identify the lymphatic vessels.
1: How many anastomoses do you uh, typically aim to make, and how, how long does it usually take you?
0: So that's a, you know, that anastomosis depends. I mean, we try to do one to two of them. Each of them probably takes about 20, 30 minutes. Um, they are, they're smaller vessels. Um, you know, it's all about the setup. So it's all about the setup to find the vessels that are of the re- of a reasonable caliber, um, and these are still small vessels. So even though it's higher up in the arm, we're still talking about submillimeter vessels that were um, that were reconnecting.
1: Logistically, how does planning for lympho work? Is it just those patients who who are definitely planned to undergo an axillary lymph node dissection? Well, I'm thinking. What about those occasional patients for whom the axillary lymph node dissection becomes indicated only intraoperatively, such as the case of an unsuccessful sentinel lymph node biopsy?
0: No, I think it's a. I think it's a great question. So logistically, lympha is challenging to implement. Um, you know, we for these types of cases, though, um, we see the patients preoperatively. So it really has to be those patients where there's a known um, plan for a lymphadenectomy that they'll that they'll be potential candidates for this operation. Um, you know, it would be nice to be able to offer this operation to all patients who are at risk for developing lymphedema or at risk for requiring a lymphadenectomy, but uh, the logistics for that just aren't in place right now. Um, so that, that is, uh, that's a limitation overall of our ability to, to provide this operation to all comers.
1: And just for my curiosity, is your anastomosis being constructed end-to-end or end-to-side or some other configuration I'm not aware of?
0: Yeah, so it's uh it can be either. So end-to-end is often the way that we'll do these anastomoses. Um <clears throat> sometimes we can do end-to-side depending on the caliber of the vessels. Um if our veins that we're trying to anastomose with are not of a reasonable caliber, then we can try to do end-to-side into them as well. Um and then, you know, there there is some question of whether um, end to side may be better because you have some negative suction from the venous outflow versus end to end where you can get backflow of the vein into the lower pressure of lymphatics. Um, I think those are areas that require more investigation and we're really not sure. Um, but we, you know, the goal is to get a connection uh, or a couple of connections. And I think for lympha doing end to end is a reasonable way to do it. So we've been
1: talking about lympha, uh, prophylactic lymphovenous bypass. How do things differ when you're performing bypass for a patient who already has lymphedema? I assume the axilla is scarred down and it's not going to be amenable for lymphovenous bypass in that location anymore.
0: Yeah, so it's a little bit different um, in the lymphovenous bypass patients who have uh, who already have lymphedema. So for those patients, what we'll do is um, usually... Uh, use about three or four different incisions on the forearm and those incisions aren't that long they're probably about uh four to five centimeters in length um four centimeters in length just about and what we'll do is in the um in the distal extremity so in the in the web spaces basically we'll inject indocyanine green and we'll inject methylene blue and then what we do is we use the camera um, the ICG camera. So we turn off the lights in the OR, make it real dark, use our ICG camera, and then we can see how the indocyanine green is traveling through the, through the lymphatics in the arm. And what we can see ultimately is that there is a linear pattern for the lymphatics if there's no lymphedema. Uh, at some point when there's lymphedema, you get a very speckled pattern and diffuse kind of um, uh, flow of a kind of a Diffusion of the indosign um, and green into the dermis. So where you see that diffuse diffusion pattern, or that diffuse pattern is where the lymphatic vessel is likely just leaking out into the area. Um, and so what we do then is we plan to make an incision that is on the extremity, um, just distal basically. So just um, distal to where that diffuse pattern is. And then we look for the lymphatic vessel there. Um, so we'll follow, we'll follow these, um, lines on the arm, uh, and we draw them out basically, uh, where we can see, we trace them out where we see the endocyte green traveling.
1: All right. Let's, let's move away from lymphovenous bypass and, uh, onto lymph node transfers. So when are you using this as an option, Dr. Agarwal?
0: So I think, so lymph node transfer surgery, I think for patients, um, who have lymphedema is, um, is my kind of go-to. So, we talked about lympha as a preventive approach, and we talked about lymphovenous bypass because they're closely related and lymphovenous bypass in the patients who have lymphedema. But really, lymph node transfer is the approach, is a surgical approach that I use for patients who have lymphedema. And so, what that that essentially entails is uh, moving lymph nodes uh, from one part of the body um, into the affected lymph node basin. So, if it's the upper extremity into the axilla, Um, if it's the lower extremity into the inguinal region. Now, the caveat is that there are uh, many groups now that are putting them even distally in the wrist and in the axilla, or distally in the calf or ankle and in the inguinal region. And I think there are a lot of studies that are out there where people are trying to figure out where is the optimal location. The general idea, um, and there's some basic science papers out out that uh, basically show that When we move lymph nodes into that area and we reconnect the vasculature, so we reconnect an artery in a vein, that the lymphatic fluid is actually being pulled into the lymph node and then being diverted into that vein, so that outflows from the lymph node. Uh, lymph node flap into the vein and back into the circulatory system, and so the idea is that the lymph nodes serve as a sump that they they basically suck up the lymphatic fluid and divert it back into the to the central system. The lymph nodes that we get, um, we can take from kind of myriad locations. So we often will take them in patients who are who have breast who require breast reconstruction. We'll take them from the um, from actually the groin region. And we do a series of mappings to basically make sure that we're not taking the main lymph nodes of the leg. And we take these superficial lymph nodes from the groin and we take them with the abdominal tissue. And we transfer all that over to the chest to reconstruct the breast and to put the lymph nodes into the axilla. Um, And then we reconnect our arteries and veins. Um, and, uh, and that's a lymph node transfer um, with a basically abdominal-based breast reconstruction as well. The alternative approach uh, can be to take lymph nodes from the chest wall side, lateral thoracic lymph nodes, uh, and we take them with l- the latissimus dorsi muscle or part of the latissimus dorsi and a skin paddle, and we can rotate that whole unit into the axilla. And the function of that is to not only bring in lymph nodes but also resurface the axilla with new fresh skin um, and provide a little bit of soft tissue bulk there as well. It doesn't uh, it doesn't allow for breast reconstruction in the same way that the um, that the former does, uh, but it does uh, offer an effective approach that's not uh, microvascular.
1: So to clarify for myself, so you're doing a deep flap with like a chimeric groin lymph node component as well.
0: Yeah. Kind of like composite flap. Yeah.
1: So I guess the timing often works out for you, how that, that the patient is like ready for delayed breast reconstruction, but is also happening to develop some early lymphedema. Is that typically how the clinical sequence of events occurs for you?
0: Yeah. So that, so it works out that way. Sometimes these are patients who just never wanted breast reconstruction in the first place. So, you know, they had radiation and they didn't want breast reconstruction and now they have lymphedema. It's really bothersome. And so now is the time to offer these different options, and you know the discussion is, is you know what is the priority? So if the priority is really to address the lymphedema, and they don't want to have any type of breast reconstruction, then you know I think using latissimus uh, a portion of latissimus from the back with a skin paddle and the lymph nodes is a is a nice operation um, that can be done in about you know three or four hours. Um, whereas if someone wants breast reconstruction with it, uh, then it's a longer operation. Um, but, you know, it's done at one time as well. There are other donor sites that people can use, such as um, lymph nodes from the neck, as well as lymph nodes from the omentum as well. Um, And again, we're talking mostly about breasts, but those options um, would be uh, available for the lower extremity as well.
1: What does the basic science tell us about how exactly these transferred lymph nodes actually serve as a sump? How are they actually reaching out and forming connections with local lymphatics?
0: Yeah, so so the literature is is growing, but you know there are a couple of uh, randomized trials out there. Um, one of which is studying uh, lymph node transfer with uh, adenovirus for Vegfc. So Vegfc or vascular endothelial growth factor C is a, um, a pro-lymphangiogenic uh, growth factor. So you know blood vessels respond to Vegfa. So when there's a lot of Vegfa blood vessels grow um, uh, abundantly, uh, and that's kind of the underpinning of, say, Avastin as a treatment um, to inhibit uh, VEGFA. When we look at VEGFC, VEGFC is a pro-lymphangiogenic agent, so when there's a lot of VEGFC, there's a lot of lymphatic vessels that grow, but so the idea has been that if you, uh, these lymph nodes, if you deliver them with VEGFC, um, they'll actually, you uh, be more robust. The idea being that lymph nodes are able to, with small lymphatic vessels that grow out from them, uh, pull in lymphatic fluid. So there's, there's afferent lymphatic vessels and there's efferent lymphatic vessels. And the afferent lymphatic vessels take lymphatic fluid and drain it into the lymph node. The efferent lymphatic vessels take it from that lymph node to the next chain up. Uh, And and so the idea is that these lymph nodes that we've transferred there have um, afferent lymphatic vessels that grow from them or grow to them and take in the lymphatic fluid. Once they get to that lymph node or to those lymph nodes, how they get out of those lymph nodes is something that uh, kind of I alluded to earlier, which is that you know, they may go through efferent lymphatic vessels, but ultimately they're likely leaving the whole system by draining into the vein.
1: You said earlier that that this, you know, lymph node transfer is really your preferred modality for patients with existing lymphedema, compared at least to lymphovenous bypass. Why is this the case? What what does the evidence tell us about the efficacy of these approaches?
0: Sure. So so one is I, I, th- I think that there's stronger, um, kind of more robust literature surrounding lymph node transfers. Um, And and that's why I kind of, um, I think that those are, that's kind of the approach that is my preferred approach. I think the other aspect of lymph node transfers is that you're providing soft tissue. So these patients have had radiation and surgery, and so they have a lot of scarring. And so we know as plastic surgeons, one of the things about scar and uh, radiation um, is to bring in healthy soft tissue. It's kind of the underpinning of free flap breast reconstruction in the site of radiation. And so how we can bring in healthy vascularized soft tissue is with the lymph node transfer as opposed to lymphovenous bypass. So in addition to bringing in these lymph nodes, which act as a sump, we're bringing in a healthy non-radiated tissue to fill in the defect site that's been scarred down. And so we can really resurface the scarred area. We can provide some volume. And patients have a lot of relief just from the release of the scar um, inside the area. So, you know, even immediately after the surgery, when I know that lymphedema will not have been, you know, improved with this operation because it's way too quickly, uh, patients still have uh, a big um, feeling of improvement because it just feels softer in the affected area. With respect to efficacy, um, so there are a couple things. So we basically counsel our patients that um that this is not a cure, right? So patients who have lymphedema are going to have lifelong lymphedema. And if we do a lympho transfer or a lymphovenous bypass, we know that we'll never reverse their lymphedema to the other limb. They'll always, you know, they'll always have their unaffected limb and their lymphedema limb. Um, But we let them know that we expect them to have a reduction in the amount of wrapping that will be required, the extent or the the frequency of wrapping um, that may be required or the amount, the duration during a day. The literature is um, a lot of single uh, single institution reviews and now uh, increasingly some systematic reviews which are trying to compile the data showing that it's efficacious, but there's still a a fairly large standard deviation among studies. So long story short, Michael, I think that we need to do more to understand um, how well this works. And I think we need RCTs. Um, But but you can imagine an RCT for a very invasive operation is pretty challenging. Can
1: you tell us more about kind of what, what the history of lymphedema surgery has been? Like, where are we in the time course of the um, of the evolution of this kind of surgery? I get the sense the answer is early, but I want to get a flavor of exactly where we are at now in our mastery of these techniques.
0: So there are a couple, you know, I love this uh, this question when we think about where we are in time course, because so lymphedema surgery is not actually as new as you may think. So it has been around since probably, I think like the 60s is when it was first described, maybe the 70s. What has changed over time are the instrumentation that we have and the technology that we have, right? So when I think about evolution of operations, anything that we do, um, really the same operations that we do now may be more efficacious than, than they were 20 or 30 years ago because Our suture material is better. Our microscopes are much better. Now we have and green cameras that allow us to visualize things in real time better. And so all those things are impacting the efficacy of the operation um, and the adoption of this operation by multiple different surgeons across the world. So whereas I can tell you that this operation's been around for probably over 40 years, not to the same extent with the same number of people practicing it and perfecting it and sharing their outcomes as we have now.
1: So there's one last surgical option we need to discuss and and that's for patients who have end stage or late stage lymphedema whose limbs are just you know totally fibrotic and, and super microsurgery with lymph node transfers or lymphovenous bypass is no longer really an option. So is this where liposuction comes into play?
0: Yeah, so, you know, I think, um, so lymphedema for patients who um, are at that kind of chronic long-term lymphedema that that hasn't been um, as well kind of managed, um, those patients will be amenable to liposuction. And, and so, you know, in that situation, what we do is we use a cannula and we uh, use that to suck out fat fluid that may be in between the fat as well as um, fibrous tissue. And um, and then, you know, after that, we can get pretty good reduction in the volume, a fairly significant reduction in volume. And it's all, it's physical, right? So it's what we, the reduction in volume is is exactly correlated with the amount of tissue that we remove. Um, and then, but then afterwards, we have to wrap the limb back up because the underlying disease process is still there. And it's no longer amenable to what I call our physiologic operation. So our lymph node transfers and lymphovenous bypasses, and instead... We have to keep the limb wrapped. And the goal here in that situation is let's just reduce the circumference of the limb because that limb is is large and it is um, impacting patients' quality of life, their ability to function. If we can just get it back down to a reasonable volume, even 30%, 40% less than where it is right now, then, um, then they can continue on with their activities of daily living that's required with that limb.
1: Great, great. Um you know I just actually thought of uh, one last question but h- how much of a headache is insurance coverage for these procedures I-, I imagine that the insurance companies aren't seeing a lot of uh lymphedema surgery and so you know the criteria for for coverage is probably um pretty heterogeneous
0: you know insurance is um Insurance coverage for lymphedema procedures is challenging. So, the lympho procedure, um, you know, almost always gets rejected and then appealed and rejected. And expect um, you know there are few insurance carriers that that give a harder time than others. Um, lympho transfer um, uh, we can we have a little bit more luck with. Um, oftentimes, because we're doing flap. Um, we're doing a flap not only for the lymphedema, but also for the scarring that exists in the axilla or for the breast reconstruction as well. And so um, so in that sense, um, there is a non-lymphedema component to the operation that we're trying to achieve. Um, and so that, that helps out. But, you know, my team and I think teams across the country are, are working really hard to to get approvals, to appeal, to cite the literature, to add to the literature. Um, And ultimately, you know, a lot of it comes down to advocacy from not only from the surgeons, but amongst the patients themselves. Uh, You know, just like in, you know, breast reconstruction, having advocacy um, and breast cancer patients advocating was one of the major pushes to have breast reconstruction covered by insurance. Um, The same can be said for lymphedema, I think, over time.
1: All right. Um, any final remarks about lymphedema before we let you go, Dr. Agarwal?
0: Uh, no. You know, I think that um, I think that the the other aspect is just how integral occupational therapists and physical therapists are to this process. Um, these are the individuals who um, who ideally are able to prevent our patients from progressing to that chronic lymphedema state, um, and are able to um, you know help patients kind of manage their lymphedema early on um, in a way that may even allow them to avoid surgery because they just feel comfortable managing it non-operatively. So having a close relationship um, with, uh, with the occupational physical therapists who are taking care of these patients, I think is really important. Um, I think the other aspect uh, that is worth mentioning is um, is that really, you know, the patients have to be informed that this is not Especially for patients who have lymphedema already, that these operations are not cures, but they're in that intended to really relieve their symptoms and improve them. Um, and I think that that dialogue is uh, is very important when you try to understand your patient's goals um, in deciding which operation is best for them.